Uh, let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for this record of your deliverance of Daniel. Uh, we thank you that it points us uh, to your greater deliverance of your son and in him of all who trust him. Now, Father, we pray uh, that you would help me now to speak your word truthfully and clearly and we would receive it as it is and know your good work in our lives, that it would help us to trust Jesus and through its teaching, correction, uh, rebuke and training, uh, we would be equipped to live as his followers. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a change is always unsettling. You know, your company's taken over by another, a new boss starts, a new principal comes to the school, a new government comes to power. What will it be like? How will it affect you? Will it prosper you or disadvantage you? Change has come to Daniel's Babylon. The old regime is gone and Darius the Mede has been installed as king. This is a big change. One empire gone, another come. A change that can affect so much of everyday life. New people in positions of power, new structures to master, new rules to get used to. A change that might be good or ill or, or make no difference to the lives of God's people. But the kind of change that can create anxiety and insecurity, the kind of change that God's people have experienced repeatedly over the centuries as power has shifted from one group to another. Change we're experiencing in a small way as we feel a shift in the values and worldview of the society around us. In such times of change, big change, how can we live securely? Where can we find our centre of gravity to give us stability? Where can we put our confidence? In our position, our property and wealth, family, connections... Oh God, how should we respond if the change looks threatening? If we see some working to exploit that change to our disadvantage and loss. Daniel 6 shows us Daniel living through a time of great change, change that is exploited to threaten his very life. And what we see in God's word is that faithfulness to the faithful God is always the safe place to be. And faithfulness to the faithful God will bring others to confess his greatness. And in seeing that, we'll also see how we can witness to misguided power. Well, as the chapter starts, uh, we see Darius is shaking up the administration, the bureaucracy. He's trying to create an effective administration, mainly for the purposes, as usual, of revenue for the collection of taxes. And so he's broken up his realm and he's delegating the responsibility to 120 satraps, people who would administer smaller areas under his rule. Now, there was plenty of opportunity to cook the books in the collection of taxes in ancient times. There was no paper trail, computer records, pay-as-you-go possibilities. People brought money, cash, to the collector. And the temptation was for a minor official to use the collection of taxes to enrich himself at both the expense of the taxpayer and the state, to overcharge one and then keep back some of what he was meant to forward to the king. So these officials had to be watched. 
the state bureaucracy needed effective oversight. And so the king appointed, we see verse 2, three administrators, including Daniel, to be a kind of official auditors to make sure the king would not be defrauded. But now the problems start because Daniel was very conscientious and able. And so the king was, in a sense, going to make him auditor general, but with a bit more power. Now, if you're a government official wanting to use your post to enrich yourself and increase your own power in the administration, and that was actually the expected thing, it's why you entered royal service, well, someone in whom there's no negligence and corruption who is diligent to protect the king's interests is a threat. Daniel became an active threat to their plans and ambitions, their careers and wealth, so he had to be discredited, his influence curtailed. But they could find no fault in him, either in his integrity, his worth ethic or his ability. And so they concluded, verse 5, we will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of God. Now note that Daniel's enemies weren't opposed to his faith in itself. As far as they were concerned, Daniel could believe whatever he liked about God. They were opposed to his life of faith. The behaviour his faith gave rise to opposed because it interfered with their own plans and showed up their self-interest. Now, that's the kind of opposition that can arise in any workplace where living as believers, doing what you do, as Paul says, from the heart, something done for the Lord and not for people, shows up the behaviour of your colleagues, whether that's their laziness or carelessness or pilfering or worse. In Daniel's faith, his commitment to God seen in his obedience to the law, the officials saw an opportunity to advance themselves by getting rid of him. <coughs> Together, they hatch a plan to use the power of the state to do their dirty work. And so they come to Darius together. Now, that must have impressed Darius, this show of unanimity. Please buy it. Although, of course, it's a bit of an exaggeration. Daniel wasn't included. And then these satraps come together, make a most flattering suggestion. Establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days, anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown to the lion's den. Darius likes it. It'll enhance his glory reinforce his power, make clear to all his central role in their lives and their dependence on him and the state. The king's power will be seen as the only source of blessing and the king, therefore, the only one to whom they should give their loyalty. And if they don't, well, they'd suffer the consequences, excluded from Darius's kingdom by being excluded from life via the lions. Now, the Persian kings already had a very high view of their power. The laws they create, verse 8, are said to be irrevocable and cannot be changed. They thought they never got it wrong, never needed to change their minds. Such was their wisdom and might. This new decree will reinforce the king's status, make clear that the gods have given him their power. Now, it's not quite the same as Nebuchadnezzar's decree in chapter 3, there, Nebuchadnezzar, remembered, had commanded everyone to do something to worship his idol. Here, Darius is commanding everyone to not do something. They must not petition, make prayer to, seek help from anyone but the king. 
but it's just as dangerous to God's people and it serves the administrator's purpose well enough. And while it sounded good to Darius, as you heard in the story, as soon as it had to be acted upon, he realised it was a foolish decree, one he did not want to carry out, verse 14. As soon as the king heard this, that they fingered Daniel, he was very displeased. He set his mind on rescuing Daniel and made every effort until sundown to deliver him. He was flattered into foolishness. It was foolishness because it served the administrator's purpose, not his own. It was foolish because it hurt his own power by destroying a trusted and loyal servant. And that's part of the tragedy of what's happening in Daniel 6. The king, the state, is actually well disposed to Daniel. There's no ill feeling towards him. But his action has exposed Daniel to harm, to death. Now, at this point, we should pause to remember that we are threatened by a foolish law, the change and suppression legislation. Now, we've talked about it a couple of times because it's actually a very different piece of legislation. And it's not foolish in its intent. In seeking to prohibit destructive and shameful coercive practice that have harmed young gay people in the past, it's right. Those practices have more to do with psychological interventions like aversion therapy that, at least in my experience, have never had any place in the church. But some aspects of that legislation in Victoria, where it goes beyond similar legislation in other states and jurisdictions, have potential for mischief. Only in Victoria, for example, are adults not free to choose for themselves whether they want to be involved in change and suppression practices and even voluntary conversations between adults could potentially be breaking the law. And then there's the failure to specifically exclude conversations between parents and children from its scope and they're legislating that only one kind of response to the gender dysphoria of young people, the affirmation approach, is acceptable. Potentially these provisions could be very difficult. For example, the Act makes illegal running a support group designed to help people not act on their same-sex attraction where all present are there because they want to. A religious leader consistently telling a member of their faith to suppress and ignore their feelings, that is to live a chaste life, could be breaking the law. Perhaps even praying with them with their consent that the law would strengthen them to resist acting on their desire could be breaking the law. And remember, religious leaders are not just ministers. Bible study leaders, youth group leaders, all are included. Now, we'll have to wait to see how the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission implement this, the provisions of this Act. And as I've listened to ministers and MPs speak... I don't think their intent is the harassment of Christians teaching Christian doctrine. They want to prohibit these practices which are very bad and generally speaking I think they're well disposed towards us. Though it may have been the intent of some of the groups that have pushed the legislation. But it's still foolish legislation in making more difficult, difficult conversations between parents and children by having the prospect of state intervention hanging over them, by enshrining what the British High Court in the Bell versus Tavistock judgment has called an experimental treatment 
as the only approach to gender dysphoria where it's actually certain that in the coming years, knowledge about and response to, to, to gender dysphoria will change. And it's foolish by not taking into account that some people do want to change their lifestyle and by robbing adults who want it of honest, private conversation. But the real question is, how should we respond to a foolish law? To the power of the state being co-opted by the ambitions of a few? Well, how does Daniel respond? What does he choose to do? When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in its upstairs room opened towards Jerusalem and three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed and gave thanks to his God just as he had done before. Daniel knows of the decree's enactment and he knows the lions are real. So what does he do? Well, let's first think of what he doesn't do. He doesn't make a fuss doesn't make a show of his commitment to God. He goes into his house upstairs. He doesn't seek an audience with the king. He doesn't call on his contacts to make him an exception. And he doesn't decide that he'll pause his devotion. He doesn't say it's only 30 days, I'll keep a low profile and just wait till the trouble passes. And he doesn't go into hiding. What does he do? He keeps on praying and giving thanks just as he had done before. Now notice that. He gives thanks to the Lord, even as his commitment to God becomes a source of danger to him. For the Lord was still God, the God who gave him life and health, who had made him one of his people whose promises were sure. He doesn't change, even though he knows it's a setup designed to get him out of the way. He doesn't change. He keeps on doing what he'd done before, for the Lord is still God. If it was right to pray and give him thanks before, it was still right. No human decree changed that. No human decree changes who the Lord is, and the Lord gets to say how we should worship him, how we should respond to his rule in initiative and initiative in calling us into relationship with himself, and what the Lord calls for, his people keep doing. And that should be response to our foolish law. If it's right to tell people that life, eternal life, is found in repentance and faith in Jesus, that Jesus is worth giving up your life to follow, as Jesus himself says, remember, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, for whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it, if Jesus reckons he is worth everything, Well, we should tell people he's worth everything. He's worth giving up all for. And if it's right that part of following Jesus for all of us is sexual self-control, that all sexual activity outside the marriage of a man and a woman is forbidden and reckoned as sexual immorality for Jesus' followers as it is, if it's right to call people to follow Jesus and to tell people this in public and individually now, then it remains right. And that's what we have to keep on doing. Jesus is the one who gets to decide what is consistent with following him, not human governments. In fact, it's not only right to keep calling people to follow Jesus on Jesus' terms, 
because he is Lord, it is right, it would be loveless as well as faithless to stop. For life is only found in Jesus. Well, Daniel makes his choice and the plotters spring their trap. They find Daniel, as they knew they would, praying in his room, petitioning and imploring God the very behaviour the king had forbidden. They obviously don't think Daniel will get help from his God. His prayers don't worry them and off they scurry to the king. And they lead the king into the trap that they have set for him, set for the king as well as for Daniel. Oh, first of all, didn't you sign an edict? They said, oh, yes, yes, the king says, oh, yes, the order stands, it's irrevocable, he's not able to deny it. And when he's affirmed that this is his decree, they say with glee, verse 13, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles. Now, notice that, not... Daniel, your trusted advisor and administrator, uh, Daniel, the Judean exile, has ignored you, the king and the edict you signed for he prays three times a day. And the king sees his trouble immediately, that he's been trapped into inflicting harm on himself. He tries to rescue Daniel, but he is seen to be powerless You know, your majesty, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians, verse 15, that no edict or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. So the king gave an order and they brought Daniel and they threw him into the lions. The one who had been flattered into presenting himself with the power to grant everyone's requests cannot even save Daniel from himself. In fact, the king can't even rescue himself from himself. Even the power of well-disposed rulers is limited. God's people can't put their trust in them for security. If Daniel's hope had been in Darius and his good relationship with him, he would have faced a crushing disappointment. There are all sorts of constraints working on those in power. But the king, confronted with his own weakness, His rule exposed through his own pride as frail and finite points us to the source of real hope and security. He says, may your God, whom you continually serve, rescue you. And he spends his night in fasting, fasting to express his grief and gain the attention of God. Darius cares, but of course his care is of no help at all. Daniel's in the lion's den and the den is sealed so no one can come and secretly rescue him or distract the lions. But Daniel was right to put his trust in God, to keep on living the life of real faith in the living God even if it exposed him to hostility and death. Whether it's fear or hope that brings Darius to the lion's den after a restless night, we don't know. But Darius comes early and he calls out to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to rescue you from the lions? And wonderfully, Daniel answers, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. He's alive. And as Darius soon learns in verse 23, he's unscathed. And it wasn't, as verse 24 shows, 
when those traitors really are thrown into the lions. And it wasn't because the lions weren't hungry or were time, tame lions. God has delivered Daniel by sending his angel to shut the lion's mouth and vindicating his innocence before God and the king. It's the Lord, the living God, who can rescue Daniel, not Darius. And as it is the Lord, the living God, whose judgments prevail, not Darius's flawed judgment. The Lord rescues, not human rulers. The Lord's judgment prevail, not human rulers. And yes, the Lord's enemies, those who reckoned him of no account in their scheming, they are the ones who are judged with death. Daniel was right, verse 23, to trust God, for he trusted in his God, to make the living God his refuge in the ebb and flow of power politics. Faithfulness to the faithful God is the safe place to be. In all the changes of life, our trust is not to be in possessions, property, our own power or influence, or even in friendly politicians. It's to be in the Lord, like Daniel. And you notice Daniel didn't try and manufacture or manipulate the outcome himself. Rather, he kept on entrusting himself to the one who judges justly by keeping on living as the Lord's person, keeping on worshipping the Lord, giving the Lord the thanks that was his due and turning to the Lord for help. And as part of that, he kept on dealing respectfully with the king. Did you notice that? After an uncomfortable night in the lion's den, when Darius greets him, Daniel returns the greeting with, May the king live forever. No outrage, no bitter recrimination, respect and service, trust in God, the Lord who rules over all things. That's the way to life. Trust in God, even when people are seeking to enlist the power of the state to do harm to the Lord's people. Trust in God is vindicated in Daniel, and in his trust and vindication, he points us to the Lord Jesus. You see, as in Daniel's case, Jesus' enemies manipulated the power of the state, the Roman state, to destroy him. And like Daniel, remember, Jesus was seized at prayer in the garden, and he was brought to trial by the state. And in that trial, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly, to the Lord, the true ruler and judge. But of course, unlike Daniel, after his unjust condemnation, the Lord Jesus was killed. There was no last minute rescue, no cavalry coming over the hill. But you know, he was still right to trust in the living God. God raised him from the dead. The Lord rules and faithfulness to the faithful and just God is always the safe to be, place to be. And because of the Lord Jesus' death, that's the safe place we can be in always, in a relationship of faith with the faithful God. Daniel was spared because he was innocent. But we aren't innocent, we're guilty sinners. 
Now, you can think perhaps of your own sin. There might be something on your mind. But, you know, of ourselves, we're more like those envious satraps, trying to work our own advantage, pursue our self-interest, create space for our greed and corruption where we can do what we want. Of ourselves, we deserve condemnation. Yet we can be spared because Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. He has died for our sins. And forgiven, we can come home to the one who can always keep us and raise us from the dead, the shepherd and overseers of our souls, the Lord Jesus. We can be safe with him eternally, whatever others do to us. Why would we be afraid of them? And that's important, isn't it? For not all who trust God get the kind of immediate vindication we see in Daniel 6. Clinton has already drawn your attention to the faithful in Hebrews, the end of Hebrews 11. Oh, it's true, as it says there, some shut the mouth of lions. But it goes on to say that some experienced mockings, were stoned, died by the sword, did not receive vindication in this life. Were they right to keep trusting? Yes, because belonging to the risen Jesus, all who trust him will rise with him. Listen to the Apostle Paul as he speaks of his trial before an unjust ruler. At my first offence, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me, may it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that I might fully preach the word and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. I was rescued from the lion's mouth he says, literally, but he is also comparing his experience to Daniel. And he speaks with confidence of the Lord's continuing rescue. The Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his eternal kingdom. To him be the glory forever. But you know, he speaks of that rescue knowing he will die. This is what he just said earlier in the chapter. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time for my departure is close. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. There's reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, will righteous, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Facing death, Paul is still confident that the Lord will rescue him, vindicate him. For the Lord Jesus lives. In Christ, the risen almighty Christ, who has all authority, faithfulness to the faithful saviour, to the faithful God, is always in life and death the safe place to be. But Daniel 6, of course, doesn't just tell us that in all the changes in this life it's right to look for our security in the faithful God and to him alone. It actually tells us also that faithfulness to the faithful God brings others to confess his greatness. You see, the climax of this chapter is not Daniel's rescue. It's actually Darius's confession the decree he issues to all his people that they would tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he endures forever. 
His kingdom will never be destroyed and his dominion has no end. He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth for he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. From being flattered into issuing a boastful and empty decree, through Daniel's faithfulness, Daniel's faithfulness without rancour, even in suffering, Daniel, Darius now issues a decree where he humbly confesses the truth of Daniel's God, the living almighty God. And that's actually the right response to the faithful God's vindication of his faithful servant. It's the response God calls for from us all in response to his vindication of his faithful servant Jesus. Now, you might never have done that. You might have heard of Jesus, but never acknowledge that God raising Jesus from the dead means that we ought to acknowledge that the Lord rules, rules through his King Jesus, rules over the circumstances of our life, rules over you and will hold you accountable. Oh, and you might never have acknowledged his power to rescue and save you save you through the death and rising of his son Jesus where you call out to him. But that's what the gospel record is for, the record of Jesus' life, his unjust killing and God's vindication of him in his resurrection. The gospel record's there to bring you to say, I am not in charge, I can't keep myself safe, I can't rescue myself from myself. In the world where God rules, and enacts his judgment. But Jesus can, if I will believe the gospel. So if you're not yet a believer, as you think about this world and where safety can be found, now is the time to acknowledge and call out to the saving God, or at least to find out more by signing up for Christianity Explored or reading the gospel by yourself or with a Christian friend. For faithfulness to the faithful God is the safe place to be. Even if they put you in the lion's den, even if they put you on a cross, even when they put you in the grave, he rescues and delivers. He gives and preserves life. And that's what all of us must remember when we live in a world where sometimes power is misguided, manipulated by the enemies of God and his people. For trusting God like Daniel we can respond like Daniel does, respond well in ways that honour God and bring others to honour him. You see, what do we see in conclusion in Daniel's response to misguided power? Well, firstly, effective witness starts with integrity of life. Did you notice that? starts by telling us Daniel could not be faulted in his service, which was conscientious, honest, not driven by self-respect, self-interest and respectful. And secondly, Daniel had a public, faithful lifestyle, a habit of real relationship with God. He prayed, and we know from Daniel 9, he meditated on God's word. Daniel couldn't be embarrassed or threatened out of that practice. He was determined to keep on honouring the living God in the way he lived, to obey God rather than people. And thirdly, what we see is that all this was grounded in a real trust in the living God. Trust as he is, the one whose 
kingdom rule will never be destroyed, whose dominion has no end, and who can rescue and deliver all who put their trust in him. So whatever happens with this particular piece of legislation, and who knows how it will be enforced, now is actually the time for all of us to be practising this life, this faithful life, which witnesses to the faithful God in the face of misguided power. Now is the time to turn away from sin so that our lives are exemplary, especially in our work, so that those who look at them can find no fault with them. Turn away from laziness and self-interest. And now's the time to nurture and be open about our relationship with the living God by practising the means he gives us to relate to him. Prayer, meditation on his word, meeting with his people and letting that be known about you. And yes, now's the time to grow in trust in our God by knowing our Saviour better, knowing his word and knowing its truth because we live each day with our Saviour, knowing his love, knowing his might, knowing the power of his life in us. So we don't know what will happen with this legislation, but we do know the world will continue to be full of change. One regime will follow another. One group will come to power and another be forgotten. And always there will be those who seek to use the change as an opportunity to advantage themselves, to promote themselves. So now, every day, is the day to live as those whose lives witness to the faithfulness of our God and who find their peace and security in their faithful God, the great shepherd of the sheep who has brought us back to himself, brought us home through the death of his son. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray in your great mercy that we would trust you as Daniel did. We would trust you in life and death, that we would trust that you are God, that the good God, the one to whom thanks is always due, the one to whom thanks and praise can always be given with glad and full hearts. For you are almighty and you are the God of steadfast love and you are gracious and merciful and have saved us in your son. We pray help us to grow in our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.